John chapter 10 continues in verse 11. God's word says, I am the good shepherd. The good sheep lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away because he is the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed. And raving mad, why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. God, I pray that you use my words to help people both here and online to hear your word proclaimed. Help open the eyes of the blind. I pray that these words aren't just words on pages, but they are words that we live out in our lives for those that are in Christ. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What is the most important question that's ever been asked? Have you ever thought of that? Which question has been the most divisive question that's ever been asked? Which question is the most critical to get right in your life and in mine? I believe the answer to this question is what is the true identity of Jesus Christ? For over 2,000 years, this single question has divided the entire world. Some have claimed that Jesus was insane, a lunatic, a liar, delusional. Some have claimed that Jesus was good, a good man, a prophet, a priest. Others have claimed that Jesus is divine, God, and the Lord. And this single question is the question that defines an entire life. It sets a trajectory that either we live for ourselves or we live for our Lord. Many false religions are based on this single question by misinterpreting it. Jesus, many other religions claim, is not the God-man, but is the good man. I believe that the answer to this question is the single most important question you will ever be asked. And so the sermon title I have for you this morning is this, Insane or Divine? Question mark. Chapter 9, Jesus, as Pastor Lee has mentioned, is, has healed a blind man. Why do you think God's word emphasizes on the word blind? Have you ever thought of that? It could have just said Jesus healed 
a blind man, but it adds to it, what? From birth. This person was born into this condition, and in that culture, people thought if you were born blind, that it was either something that your parents had done or somebody that your family had done. There was some sin that was pervasive that had caused the blindness. That was the prevailing culture. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He heals the man, and immediately the man is questioned. Now, if you look in chapter 9, what they question isn't the miracle, but it's the identity of Jesus Christ. For they say, is this man a sinner twice? Why do you think God's word focuses here? I believe the answer to this question is this. They were trying to discount Jesus' Christ's identity so that his miracle was not divine. Therefore, he was not to be followed. But who are the ones asking this question? They're the Pharisees. So who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are God's teachers to the Jews. These are the ones that were supposed to know more about God's word than anybody else. And yet, here is God himself standing in front of them, and they are questioning the identity of God to a man that has just been healed from birth. And you remember the story. He's healed from birth, and what do they do? They go and talk to not only him, but to his parents. And after talking to his parents, who then punt the ball back to the son, what do they have to do? Talk to the man again. So they ask the man for the second time, is Jesus a sinner? And as Pastor Lee said, he answers the most beautiful words, perhaps in chapter 9, maybe in some of the Bible. I do not know the identity of the man. I do not know if this man is a sinner, is exactly what he said. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then, they're not very happy. So the Pharisees cast him out of their sight, and Jesus draws him into his sight. So Jesus eventually finds him. And you'll read in verse 36 of chapter 9, Jesus finds the man and says to him, what? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Capital S, capital M. Son of Man is a code for God. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, yes, if you will only but show him to me. And Jesus then reveals his identity to the blind man. And he immediately worships him and believes in him. The man that was born blind now has sight. Not only physical, but has spiritual sight. The Pharisees that were supposed to know God's word and interpret God's word are now guilty. So at the end of chapter 9, you see a dichotomy, a division that's happening. A discounting to the identity of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders have cast out not only the blind man, but have cast out the Lord himself. The man that they were waiting for, proclaiming for, has now been discounted as nothing but a liar, a lunatic, delusional, and ultimately would need to die. And this is the crux of the entire Bible. This single parable that we'll walk through this morning is actually the turning point of the book of John. For the identity of Jesus Christ becomes relevant becomes obvious in his own words. And unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which Jesus' identity is is revealed, but then it's concealed in his words, the book of John actually inverts that. And in chapter 10, we see that 
there is something and we'll start with a figure of speech. So the first point in your outline is a figure of speech, John 10 verses one through six. And Jesus talking to the Pharisees codes the first part of the message. So in the NIV, the newer version of the NIV, it starts off saying Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. If you're using an older version of the NIV, if you're using the ESV or a different translation, you may not see that, but that's who he's speaking to. So Jesus talking to the religious leaders says to them the following story. There is a sheep and there's a sheep gate and there's a pen and there's a fold and there's a thief and there's a robber. Now in Hamilton, I don't know how many sheep gates you passed this morning, or folds, or flocks. This is not common for us, is it? But back then, this was very normal. This was language that was everyday language. And every major town and every major city would have a sheep gate. And so what would happen is at the end of the day where the sheep were in the fields and grazing and they're feeding, they would be brought back together into the pen, into the fold at nighttime. And the shepherds who were standing watch over their sheep by day would call them and they would come. And they would go into the city and the shepherds that were tired from looking after the sheep would hire hands. So the hired hand is a word for somebody that would look after the flock at night. And so Jesus in verses one through six tells a story. And he says there is a, a sheep pen, there are sheep, there's a sheepfold, there's a gate, there's thieves, and there's robbers. This was normal language for them. But then he puts a shocking detail into his account. So look with me at your Bible, and we're going to go through John chapter 10 together. Jesus opens this parable by verily, truly, or truly, truly, or I tell the truth, depending on your translation. When this is said, this is coded language for what I'm about to tell you is new to the listener. So when you read this in God's word and you see verily, verily, or truly, truly, this is a repeating frame that was done so that the listener would pay close attention to what came afterwards. And what came after this was the story. And in verse 2, it says, the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought it all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. What you may not know about sheep what I didn't know about sheep until I prepared for this message is the following. You can have intermixed many sheep from many folds and they will immediately follow the voice of their shepherd. Isn't that fascinating? Now, we don't think of sheep, perhaps, in our culture as something that's a normal analogy. But why do you think Jesus used sheep here? Can a sheep protect itself? Can a sheep do really anything by itself? See, I think the analogy that Jesus is using is not only going to attack the people that were supposed to protect God's people, but he's using it to convey a truth about God's people, which is God's people in and of themselves are unable to do anything by themselves, but they require a shepherd. 
And so the sheep analogy is vitally important for us to gather this morning. And what it's telling the listener is the word calling and the word voice is effective or effectual. And what that means is that when Jesus calls the sheep, when the shepherd calls the sheep, they will listen and they will come. It's not optional. It's not that they might come. It's not that they'll come, but they'll depart. It's that they will come. But what is coded in this parable is who are the sheep. So in verse 16, we will get to Jesus is going to reveal a shocking truth. The Jewish leaders who thought the Jewish people were the be-all and end-all, Jesus is going to cast the net and widen the net right here in this parable and say, guess what? The sheep are beyond you. They include you, some of you, but not all of you. But guess what? It's more than just you. So in verse 5, he continues, and he says, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him. And so, friends, how beautiful is the image that Jesus Christ is conveying here? That not only are these helpless sheep unable to come in, but that they will come in and that he will protect. That's what's being conveyed in the first six verses. But what's hidden in this is the difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. So look with me now at verse 5. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Verse 6 continues. And Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling. So like any great storyteller, what happens if you don't understand the story? They tell another story. So Jesus continues in verse 7 here with the second main point, which is the exclusive way to salvation, verses 7 through 10. And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Now there are seven I am's in the book of John. Seven I am's in the book of John. All of them are significant, and I'm going to convey to you two of the seven this morning. Number four and number five are found in this single parable. And when Jesus uses the term I am, it does two things. It, it hearkens, it reckons back to the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, verse 14, where it talks about the name of God being the I am. So that's symbolically attached to this. But what's expressly being attached to this is that he is saying, I am, and then there's a word play that comes after this. So the first one Jesus uses, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. Stop. He is speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are in front of him, and he is now leveling an attack to the people that were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people, saying, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. He has now upped the ante. These are not just robbers, but thieves and robbers, if you actually look at what they used to do to the sheep and what they still do in parts of the world, is they would not only steal the sheep, but they would kill the sheep. And so what's happening here is Jesus is leveling an attack at the single people that were supposed to protect and feed God's people, the teachers of teachers, and saying, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. This is not how you make friends and influence people. So Jesus levels an attack in verse 7, 
and continues. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse nine, I am the gate. This is the second I am. I am the gate, and then he adds beautifully. Look, at the, look in your Bible. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So this is the second point. The exclusive path to salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so what Jesus here is saying to them, to them, is complete blasphemy for some. And for others, the eyes are now opening. It reckons back or harkens back or whatever the word you'd use to Acts 4 verse 2. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which must be saved. Or Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, implying Jesus. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Reminds you the pilgrim's progress, doesn't it? A journey. And few find it. Jesus transitions now, if you look at your Bibles in verse 10, and uses the second of the I am statements in this parable. So in verse 10, you see he finishes here about contrasting what a thief does versus what he does. And verse 11 continues, and he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, this is the first time that we see good and shepherd be intermingled here. And there's a strategic reason that I believe this is happening. The story opens in the figure of speech where he talks about the shepherd and the sheep and the pen and the fold and the thieves and the robbers. But now Jesus actually ramps it up and says that he is not only the shepherd, but he is the good shepherd. There are two words in the New Testament in the original language which derive from the word good in the original translations. There's two different ways you can render the word good. He actually is using one that's very, very uncommon. And denoted or connected to that is an intrinsically good. In other words, let's make it simple. It's not what Jesus is about to do is good, it's that he is good. It's not that he is good because of what he is doing and looking after the sheep, it's that he's good because of his identity. That's what's happening. So he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And this takes us to the third point. So the shepherd now is going to talk to them and expand it from just the Jews into this one flock which will take us in through verses 11 through 16. Now the shepherds did not leave glorious lives. They didn't lead glamorous lives. They didn't lead lives that would be desired. In many, in many cases it was hard and it was dangerous. Wild animals would come and would, would try to attack. And if that wasn't bad enough, then you had thieves and robbers. And that's the life of the shepherd. And Jesus, in verse 12, describes himself not just as a shepherd, but as a good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep. And when the hired hand come, the wolf, when the danger comes at the, the shepherd, or the hired hand, they scatter, because they do not own the sheep. But Jesus says, that's not who I am. He is there, and the translation in some of your Bibles where it says that he is the gate Right? And that all who come will be saved, that can actually be translated safety. So not only do you have an exclusive path to salvation, 
but you have a security denoted in the salvation. So you have a double meaning happening here. And when the hired hand sees the wolf coming, he abandons it. The thieves and the wolves are, in a very real sense, the Jewish leaders. And they're leading God's people away from the truth, caring not for the sheep, but instead for themselves. And look with me to verses 14 through 16. Jesus, just like before where he said, I am, twice, this time he uses I am twice. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me. Full stop. Wow. If you think he hasn't caused problems before this, Jesus has now ramped up what he's going to say in a way that is so significant that basically this is now going to set the path ultimately for his crucifixion. He is now calling God his father. And he is connected to the father in a unique way. So he is denoting in verses four and 14 and 15 that there is a special relationship here that he has with the Father and God. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But, he's not finished. I have other sheep, verse 16, and they're not of this flock. There should be one flock and one shepherd. So, let's back up before we go forward. So we have a figure of speech. Talking to the Pharisees, Verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 10, you can see that he has painted a path of exclusive way to salvation. Now, in verses 11 through 16, the flock, God's people, have been expanded from just the Jews to now include the Gentiles, meaning it's Jews and Gentiles. And now we're going to hit the finish line. The reason, verse 17, that my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. This is crazy. For every one of us in this room can take our life, can we not? Everyone watching online in the balcony, everyone in here can take their own life. How many of you can take it up again? See, this single claim is saying, I am God. And Jesus knows it. And as he's claiming that he has the power over life, which takes us into the fourth point, he is saying that he is the author of life. For nobody else can lay down their life and take it up again, unless they're God, correct? So now, this is a claim of divinity. And unlike in other parts of the Bible, where it's coded and a little bit tough to see, Jesus is now coming straight out of the gate, saying that he himself is God. Period. Full stop. And so... Verse 18 finishes with no one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord and I have the authority to take it down and the authority to take it up again. And this command I receive from my father. And so there's a beautiful story weaving in here. Now some of you in this room have small children. We've had small children and we have one growing child in our home still. So I want to tell you a personal story which I think connects to the identity of Jesus Christ. So, when you think about children, there is a, uh, a beautiful role that parents have to look after and protect children. 
And I believe that as soon as you find out that you're pregnant or that as a family you're pregnant with a child, there's a God-given instinct to protect this child. And Jesus, I think, is using that analogy in a sense to talk about the sheep as God's children. And it brings me back to a story. Many years ago, we were at Disneyland in California. Jonathan, our second oldest son, who is now 25 at the time, was around five years of age. And we were walking to go on the Indiana Jones ride. Now, I don't know if anybody in the room or online has been to the Indiana Jones ride, but perhaps it's the most popular ride, at least at that point, at Disney. And we were around the July 4th time frame. Now, you can imagine, if you add A and B, C becomes a sea of people. And so what happened was, we were walking, and there's a confluence of people walking from all sorts of paths, and there's this point where the Indiana Jones ride is, where basically people are coming out, and people are coming in, and people are walking by, and there's thousands of people happening all the time at this single point. And I'm walking, and I have Jonathan's hand in mine, and he's about five, and he's got a little blonde head, and he's cute as a button. And I'm holding John's hand, and little Johnny's beside me, and then he's gone. In an instant, I lost my son. And so what any parent would have done is probably the same. What would you do? So you look for him, and when you can't find him and there's people everywhere, then what? You call. So I call for Jonathan as loud as I can, and there's lots of noise all around me. And Jonathan, thankfully, a few seconds later, emerges with a look of terror on his face that he's lost daddy. But we found each other. God is nothing like that. I meant to protect my son. I was holding his hand as best I could. We slipped apart for some reason. And I was desperately trying to find him. This story that Jesus is telling, I don't think is anything like my personal story with Jonathan. I believe God is telling a story here that we need to pay attention to. And what is the story? Number one, while I meant to do good, I meant to protect my child, he meant to do good and is able to protect his child. Number two, he is good. I meant my intentions for good, but he is intrinsically good, meaning that we are safe and secure, unable to be snatched out of the hand of the Father. For in chapter 10 continues on, if you read through chapter 10, and if you were to look with me in verse 37, and he continues on into this, and he basically is talking through that those that are in Jesus, those that are in God, will never be snatched out of the hand. Those are secure they're unable to be taken out of hand. There's an, eternity, an eternal salvation assurance that's embedded into the remaining of the story. And so here, you have a claim. And the claim is this. So God is saying, not only am I God, but I'm good. Not only am I protecting the sheep, but they are safe and secure. Not only are they my, but they will come when I call. And there's, there's nobody that will snatch them out of my hand. Unlike Jonathan and my story. But then verses 17 and 18, and we're close to finishing. 
says this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I have the power, the authority to lay down it and to take it up again and this command I receive from my father. Friends, this is crazy. Unless it's true. C.S. Lewis had this trichotomy, if you will, or this triad is how he described it, where he basically said Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. A lunatic, a liar, or Lord. I would actually propose there's only two options. For if Jesus is a liar, or if Jesus is a lunatic, they're intermingled in the same statement. If Jesus is delusional, if Jesus, whether intentionally or not, if Jesus is actually delusional to the point where he is conveying a falsehood, that's a lie. Is it not? So a lie, a lunatic, are intermingled into one statement. So I believe either Jesus is insane or he's divine. And if Jesus is insane, we should stop broadcasting at West Highland. We should stop meeting on Sunday morning. We shouldn't be worried what percentage as a church we can be meeting together, whether inside or outside. We shouldn't do ministry, period. For if Jesus is insane, we are the most to be pitied of all people. For everything we do is without point. But if Jesus is Lord, everything else follows afterwards. In verse 19 through 21, you can see the reaction. The Jews that were assembled, the Pharisees, were divided. Many of them saying he is demon-possessed, raving mad. Why listen to him? Do you see how it's the word many? But then it says others, meaning there's fewer, saying these are not the sayings of demon-possessed, but rather can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Do you catch the point? Jesus has just opened the eyes of a blind man. And Jesus now gives a story of shepherd and sheep and sheepfold and robbers and thieves and talks about him being good and talks about him being the exclusive way to salvation and then ties it all together in verses 20 and 21. And basically the identity of Jesus Christ is either he is insane or he is divine. Friends, where do you land? We all will die. But not all of us will claim the same identity, belief of Jesus Christ. And so the question I have is this. What do you believe? Is Jesus Christ insane or is he divine? In this parable, we have explored insanity or sanity. Is Jesus crazed, delusional, a liar, and a madman, or is Jesus what he claimed and what I proclaim to be the Lord? The exclusive way and the only path to eternal life in heaven. If Jesus is a madman, his teaching should be avoided. In fact, his life and death and resurrection, which I talk about in this parable, should not be talked about beyond here. Do you realize that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the rest that follows is irrelevant. We sang about it in one of the hymns here, that 
being raised, and we talked about this, the whole Bible hinges and Jesus telegraphs what he's going to do in this parable, doesn't he? He basically says that he has the power over life and death and they don't realize that he is going to be killed. But he knows. And he has the power to lay down his life and he has the power to take it up. The rest of scripture hinges on this claim and that Jesus knows it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, if Jesus has not been raised, our preaching here at West Highland is futile and so is your faith. And if Jesus has not been raised, we are lost in our sins still. We're like sheep that are still in the field and we're not coming into a fold that's safe. If Jesus is truly a madman, then we who proclaim Christ as Lord only are the most to be pitied, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. But, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So, if anybody ever asks you the single point of Christianity that's the most crucial point to convey, it's that simple truth. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Why do you think there was so much emphasis by the Romans for the body of Jesus Christ? Think about that claim. For if they could substantiate a body, the rest of Christianity would fall. They knew it then, we know it now. But Jesus' body could not be produced. And this little spark grew into a massive flame and has gone around the world. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God, what, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's an assurance there. So, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And that's why we proclaim Christ. If you do, like me, and affirm that indeed he is not a, just a good man, but the God man, then, the last point, Jesus is worth everything. Everything that we do is to proclaim Christ, and Christ crucified, and Christ resurrected. If he simply died, he died in vain, unless he raised because if he doesn't have the power to raise himself, then he doesn't have the power to raise you and me. And that's what Jesus talks about in this parable. And as soon as he talked about being the author of life and death, the rest of the people in front of him divided into two camps, not three. If this is your reality here this morning, that you were in Christ, praise the Lord, for your calling had nothing to do with your abilities. I don't care what your IQ is. I don't care how much you've read of God's word. The reason that we have faith is 100% because he called his sheep. So let us never take pride in our identity in Christ. But may that draw us to humility. May that draw us to thankful hearts. Realizing that the good shepherd is the one that called you and me and will call us home. He is the one that provides safety. He is the one that provides security. He is the one that is able. We were like sheep, not even able to clean ourselves. 
not even able to protect herself, and certainly not able to come into the gate without the shepherd. The wrath of God poured out on sin, on Jesus crucified. Listen to the words that we sang. Consider him our hiding place. Our shelter is alive. Because he lived and died for us. Tis the power of the cross, son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. If this is your reality this morning, then live like it. If this is my reality this morning, may these not just be words that I hear, but may I be a doer of God's word. Which means there's really nothing else important compared to this, is there? And that anybody we love that's lost, we don't really love them unless we tell them about our Lord and Savior. And so let's use the days we're given for his glory and for our good. This the power of the cross, son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the Good Shepherd, your Son, Jesus Christ, pursues the lost. How beautiful. This is done out of his love for his children, your children. And my prayer is that any in this room, any online that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, may come to you. May it please you to call them this morning. For we know that those that you call will come. I believe there's a reason for some hearing my words and watching, which is for their good and for your glory. Jesus, you said, I am the door, and if anyone enters by you, they will be saved. So Spirit, do a mighty work in those here and watching. Father, may it please you to call more, and may my imperfect words, my feeble words, point people to the one true good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Spirit, for the saving grace that's entirely a gift for those that you call. We praise and we thank you, Father, for all you do and all you will do in our lives. Amen. Let me conclude with God's word from 2 Thessalonians verse 13, uh, 23 through 25. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. God bless. Take care.